This evening I'm going to continue kind of where I left off at the end of my last talk and uh, attempt to continue this uh, phenomenology, this attempt to give a picture of what meditation is doing. What do we do when we sit in the biggest possible uh, frame of reference, trying to get behind or beyond a concern with um, technical proficiency or just concentration or just mindfulness, to try to get back to the whole context within which we do those things. And I'm going to start with um, a Zen story from the 9th century in China concerning a monk who was posthumously known as De Shan. Uh, but that's the name I'll use even though this concerns his, his lifetime. Now Te Shan was um, known as a scholar monk and was an expert on uh, the Diamond Sutra, which is part of the Perfection of Wisdom discourses that we find in, in Mahayana Buddhism. And he came to his attention that there were a group of monks down in the south of China who were teaching a form of meditation practice that they said didn't rely on words and letters at all. And so he took it to heart and said, right, I'm going to sort these guys out. So he set off down south, again a bit like the story with uh, Huai Zhang and Hui Neng, although Huai Zhang was a lot more sympathetic to what he might find down south. Anyway, as De Shan was on his way, um, he uh, came to a roadside, um, I suppose we'd call it a cafe, but probably it was just a little hut with um, a thatch roof and a little old lady who was making tea and cakes. And so he asked for a cup of tea, as one would. And the old lady said, look, I'll only serve you if you can answer my question. The Diamond Sutra says that the past mind can't be grasped, the present mind can't be grasped, the future mind can't be grasped. So which mind does the learned monk wish to be refreshed? <laughs> so in other words, he was getting a taste of his own medicine. This, of course, is a, a reference to the doctrine of shunyatata, the doctrine of emptiness, in which ultimately nothing can be pinned down as having any self or inherent existence of its own. So however we carve up reality, let's say into past, present, future, which sounds reasonable enough, when you try to pin down what the past mind is, the present mind is, the future mind is, you find yourself in a, a conundrum. You can't actually 
locate anything that corresponds to those terms. And it appears that this gave Teishan a bit of a shock. And the old lady said, well, why don't you uh, go and see this uh, monk called Lung Dan? Lung Tan must have been a Zen monk of some kind. So Teishan went off to see him. And one evening they'd been talking or chatting and it had got dark outside and so Lung Tan uh, offered uh, Teishan a candle to illuminate his way back to his heart. But when Teishan reached out for the candle, Lutan blew it out. And at that moment, so the story goes, Teishan had a great insight, a great understanding. Now, again, um, these sorts of stories are not reducible to a single right interpretation. That's the beauty of them in a way. I'd take this to mean that at that moment, Teishan realized that by grasping for something, and again, the, the hearts are just saying, you know, what you grasp at can't be found. He grasps for this candle and it's blown out. I take that to mean that he somehow saw the futility of trying to reach out for something, truth or reality or mind, and then somehow possess it, understand it, gain insight into it and thereby feel legitimated in himself as a good scholar monk. The text says that the next day he then burnt all of his books and went into a long uh, solitary meditation retreat which lasted for some years and when he came out he appears to have become much humbled and also uh, someone who had gone a, had a, done a complete volte face from being someone rather concerned with ideas and concepts and philosophy and texts and doctrines uh, to someone who uh, really had no time for them anymore at all. Uh, for example, these are a couple of the exchanges recorded in the Koan collections with Deshan. What is awakening? A monk asks him, and he replies, get out, don't shit in here. <laughs> Another one says, who is the Buddha? And Teshan replies, an old Indian beggar. Uh, what's slightly curious about this is that as long as these sorts of statements are framed within the context of Zen Buddhism, we, we sort of take them seriously. If someone today outside this context would make such comments about Buddhism, we'd probably feel it a bit offensive. So again, it's interesting to see how Zen has somehow uh, achieved the kind of authority that it itself rejects. This is a passage from Teishan. He says, here there, he's giving a talk, is what it sounds like. Here there are no ancestors and here there are no Buddhas. Bodhidharma is a stinking foreigner. 
Shakyamuni is a dried up piece of shit. Awakening and Nirvana are posts to tether donkeys. The scriptural canon was written by devils. It's just paper for wiping infected skin boils. None of these things will save you. What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. What is known as realizing the mystery, a rather grand expression, is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. And I think in many ways, uh, this really gets close to the heart, not only of, uh, of Zen, particularly in its early period, you know, this complete um, moving away from philosophy and doctrine and theory and texts and authority that goes with them, to a very immediate, a very um, uh, vital engagement with the actuality of your own ordinary life. But also I feel this gets quite close to uh, what we find in the early canon uh, attributed to the Buddha himself. Because I think we actually see a similar pattern. Uh, The Buddha, in a way, was like a Zen master avant la lettre before there were Zen masters. And his, um, what he in a sense rebelled against was not Orthodox Buddhism, obviously, because it didn't exist then, but against the sort of formal religious institutions and dogmas of his time, which were found to a large degree in the Upanishads and perhaps in other teachings that we've lost any record of, and he too, I feel, made a very similar move to Te Shan, is that he uh, had nothing to do with notions such as uh, God, or Brahman, or Atman, sort of pure uh, spirit or soul or mind or awareness, and sought to turn attention entirely to what Teshan calls an ordinary person's life. In other words, putting aside metaphysics and belief and theory and just engaging with the actuality of our existence. For example, there's a, there's a text uh, in the Sanyutta Nikaya which is called the Sabha Sutta, uh, the discourse on everything. Sabha means all or the totality, everything. And the Buddha simply says, I will teach you Sabha, everything. And what is everything? Everything is the eyes and sights, the ears and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile sensations, and the mind and ideas. That's everything. And then he adds, 
But if someone were to claim that there is more than this, that would be a mere empty boast on his part. If he were questioned, he wouldn't be able to reply and he would meet with vexation. Why? Because, monks, that all would not be within his domain. So in other words, we have a passage here which is in rather more rather dry language than that of the Zen masters because this is India rather than China probably. But it comes down to the same thing. An ordinary person's life is one in which you see shapes and colours, you hear sounds, you smell smells, you taste tastes, you experience sensations through the body and you have ideas and mental processes and thoughts and emotions that you're aware of with your mind. That's it. Um, If you imagine anything beyond that, you're somehow speaking outside what it is you can realistically experience. So what the Buddha is concerned about, and I feel this is true very much in this practice of Zen that we're doing here, um, is to uh, remain uh, entirely within the uh, felt experience of life itself and not to uh, succumb to the temptation of positing, let's say, an absolute truth or um, a pure awareness or something that is somehow outside of of this moment or this experience that we're having right now. Something rather transcendent. Someone mentioned this the other day. Nirvana as something which is outside of which transcends, which is beyond, which is other than uh, this experience that is mediated through our senses that we're aware of now. Now when the Buddha uh, teases out uh, this uh, sense he have of, uh, has of what experience is, he does it in a number of different ways. And some of the formulations you'll be familiar with For example, he also will describe experience as the five bundles we mentioned last time. Matter, feeling, perception, inclination, consciousness. Again, that covers exactly the same range of of things, but in a past, in a different way. But personally, I find one of the most... um, complex, uh, and yet still fairly easy to grasp models that he uses is the model which goes under the heading Nama Rupa Vijnana, which means, Nama Rupa means name, form, and Vijnana means consciousness. Now, name, form, consciousness is yet another way of parsing the six senses, and their objects, or the five bundles. Yet here I think we get what is perhaps the most um, uh, detailed uh, phenomenological account of experience 
Because once we start to pick it apart, this Nama Rupa consciousness model, what we end up with is a spectrum of experience. Rupa is perhaps where we need to start. Rupa means, well, it's translated usually as form. We don't actually have a word for it in English because it actually refers to everything we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. There's no word for it in Pali or Sanskrit either. They use the word rupa, which actually refers to what you see, and then extend that word and use that word to cover what you hear and smell and taste and touch. In other words, the object of the senses is rupa. And that's, of course, what we've been very much aware of. I suspect in the last days we're certainly aware of what we see, very aware of what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. But we're also aware that these things do not exist, as it were, separate in any strict way from us. That we're always in touch, we're always contacting, where these things are always impacting us. And so if we take the example, say, of, the, of hearing the rook cawing, we can't actually draw a line in experience where the cawing of the rook stops and my hearing of it begins. There is just a kind of seamless, unbroken me listening to the cawing of the rook hyphenated. It's a seamless, unbroken experience. And in that sense, it's, it's non-dual. And again, non-duality is raised up as being something terribly um, sort of uh, important. But actually, it, it's, 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 it's fairly obvious. You can, you, can, you can check it out just by listening to a bird song or for example, by noticing the contact between your bottom and the cushion. There's no, from the point of view of immediate experience, you can't tell, you can't separate the two out. Your bottom blurs into the zafu, and your zafu blurs into your bottom. In the same way that the rook caws, we hear it, and of course, conceptually, those are two quite different things. But in experience, it's one seamless event. You can't divide it. There's no stopping and starting. There's no division at all in that experience. The same with what we see, and when we eat food, and when we smell, when we touch something with our fingers... In all of these cases, there is an impossibility of, uh, of, of dividing the world in a way that somehow would match our concepts and our words and whatever we use to describe and to tell ourselves and to tell others about it. So language breaks the world up in a way that's useful, obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't be giving this talk. But it's... Um, deceptive in the sense that it gives us the impression that there's me here and there's objects out there, etc., etc., whereas experientially, things are a hell of a lot weirder. So, 
we're impacted by what we hear and see and smell and taste and touch. It emerges in our experience. It feels a certain way. We're never entirely, completely neutral and indifferent towards it. It's either agreeable or disagreeable. Sometimes we can't quite tell which. But in other words, experience is always coloured with a certain emotion. It feels a certain way. It has a kind of hedonic tone. It's somewhere along a, a spectrum between agony at one end and ecstasy on the other. It's rarely at one of those extremes. For the most part, it hovers around the middle somewhere with peaks of happiness and maybe troughs of despair. But that's also constitutive of experience. It's what the Buddha calls Vedana, feeling tone. And experience is also something that makes sense. It's intelligible. It's disclosed as something. We don't just come into a room and see lots of shapes and colours. But we see people, we see curtains, we see walls, we see radiators, we see zafus, clocks, microphones, people sitting at the front telling us what's what. And all of that just comes at us. We don't have to make any effort to you know, identify every single one of those things. It's given. It appears to us, in fact, that it's out there. Whereas, in fact, that's something we have learned. It's the way in which we have, over our childhood and our adolescence and growing up, learning language, being educated, we've come to uh, create this world. We've come to describe this world as it appears to us. And again, it's strange, because it feels as though things are out there meaning all that stuff. Take, for example, the little green sign above the door that says, Fire Exit. If I were Chinese and didn't know the Roman alphabet, it wouldn't have that meaning at all. It would just be white squiggles on a green ground. And so if we think of similar examples, we find that, in a sense, we read the world. The world, it comes to us already laden with meaning that is already present to us as soon as we open our eyes or open our ears. And also the world or experience comes to us not as something that um, is just a thing about we have no real particular interest, but it's always presenting itself to us, or for the most part, as inviting a response inviting us to think something, uh, to say something, to do something. The world appears to us as an arena of possibilities, uh, of potential or actual actions. This is what in Buddhist language is called intention. Intention... Um, denotes that tendency we have to always be on the verge of or actually responding. It doesn't necessarily mean conscious volitional will. That's part of it. But it's that whole capacity we have to be primed to and to be engaged in a response to what's going on. It, It becomes what in Buddhist theory is called karma. Action is intention. That's how the Buddha defined karma. 
action or intention. Even when we're sitting still doing nothing in meditation or just watching our breath or asking a question, uh, we're still doing something. That is the way we are responding to experience at that time. It's an action. Even though we're sitting dead still, trying to get our minds quiet, we're still responding. It's unavoidable, I feel, that our experience is not, in some sense, responsive to what's happening. We also have this capacity of attention whereby everything we experience um, tends to draw out our interest and lead us to settle our attention on a particular part of the field. You might now, because I'm speaking and you're not, your attention is perhaps focused on me. Perhaps you're finding what I'm saying completely uninteresting and you're looking out of the window at something much more exciting. But whatever we're doing, we're attending. And that attention is what, as it were, creates a a basis for then cultivating interest, inquiry perhaps into what's going on. Uh, And it becomes the basis in the end for concentration, for samadhi, for jhana in Buddhism, the ability to really focus single-pointedly at what it is that we are attending to. So that's what the Buddha calls nama. Literally the word means name, but that's not so important in this context to understand. The point is that he he describes experience as a kind of spectrum in which all of these elements are involved from the initial impact with the so-called external world to feeling a certain way about it, to organising it and making sense of it through our perceptual capacities, through responding to it in a certain way and attending to it in a certain way. And all of that together gives rise to what he calls consciousness. So we're conscious in the sense that that is all of those things cohere in a single, seamless, unbroken experience. And that, I feel, is what Teishan refers to as an ordinary person's life. The language is very different, I agree. But I feel it's just another way of teasing out what um, we mean when we say my life, my experience, my existence. It's constituted of those elements. And the whole thing is somehow... um, Contained is perhaps not the right word, but somehow held within the, within the frame of what we call consciousness. Now it's very tempting to think that consciousness, or some subtle aspect of consciousness, is not actually arising out of these complex um, phenomena, nama rupa, but rather sort of stands apart if anything, is slightly outside of the contents of experience, is constant, 
doesn't shift or change from moment to moment, is a kind of a perpetual witness to what's happening. Some sort of pure awareness that's not determined by the complex events of which it is aware. And that is, you know, a very attractive idea because it is actually what it feels like. When we sit in meditation, it really does feel as though there's one part of us that's sort of always the one that's aware and noticing, and one that has been there as far as we can remember. I've been this me, this Stephen, whether I was a little boy playing with my toys or sitting here on this chair talking to you. It feels as though that there's been a constant uh, knowing awareness that's beheld and witnessed all of that. And it's very difficult to see through that. And I find it quite extraordinary that the Buddha did. I mean, nowadays I think we can understand it as um, uh, a sense of self or a sense of perspective that has presumably emerged out of our millions of years of evolution. It seems, according to some modern theories, to be uh, constructed linguistically through our primary linguistic relationships and it provides us with a context in which we can, be, uh, we can have, have a sense of history, a sense of the past, a sense of what we can plan for in the future and so on. It's very useful. But it's contingent. It's contingent upon the body, upon the brain, the nervous system, the world. It only appears to be a kind of detached uh, distinct, separate awareness. There's a dialogue um, again in the Sangyuta Nikaya. No, sorry, this is in the Marjana Nikaya, the middle length discourses. And here we have the Buddha behaving kind of like a Zen master, actually. And there was a monk um, in his community who was called Sati, and he was the son of a fisherman. So he's known as Sati, the fisherman's son. And um, the Buddha had got wind of the fact that Sati was teaching something um, that didn't quite accord with what he had been teaching Sati. So he summons him to the headmaster's office, as it were, and uh, he asks him, well, what have you been t- teaching? Is this true what I heard? And Sati says, yes, as I understand the Dhamma, it is this one consciousness this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. And the Buddha says, well, what is that consciousness, Sati? And Sati said, oh, it's that which speaks and feels and experiences um, things here and there as the result of good and bad actions. And then the Buddha says, misguided man, stupid fool. To whom have you ever known me to teach the Dharma in that way? Have I not stated consciousness to arise upon conditions? Since without a condition, there is no arising of consciousness. So in other words, what Sati had somehow got wrong, at least from the Buddha's point of view, was that this sense we have of being a kind of perennial witness... Um, is actually an illusion. 
that in fact there is no permanent awareness that is apart from experience, which in, in the Brahmanic tradition is also that which goes from life to life, um, experiences the fruits of karma. And again, from a Buddhist perspective, is already a very hard-to-grasp idea. How can something that is permanent and unchanging be affected by the results of actions? How can it commit actions? Surely as soon as it acts, or experiences good, or experiences a bad thing, then surely it cannot be the same. It cannot be the one thing. So the whole idea is shot through with all kinds of, 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 of contradictions, really. And then the Buddha says, Monks, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on the I and forms, it's reckoned as I consciousness. When it arises dependent on sounds and ears, it's ear consciousness, and so on. Just in the same way as a fire is reckoned by the particular condition on which it burns. A fire that's been arising out of uh, grass that's been ignited, that's a grass fire. If you burn a log, then it gives rise to a log fire. If you burn dung, it becomes a dung fire. So the Buddha's understanding of consciousness... um, is something that is as contingent and as integral to experience as anything else. It's not in any sense something that transcends or stands apart from in a real objective kind of way. And even our friend Lucretius, who we spoke of the other night, the Roman Epicurean writer, uh, makes the same point. That you can, as soon as you separate mind or consciousness from everything else, you end up with all kinds of contradictions. He says, indeed, to harness mortal and immortal with one yoke and think they can agree and interact is but a joke. Now, what happened in Zen and I think it happened in early Buddhism too, is that that starting point of the immediate experience that we're having right now, minus metaphysical theories, beliefs, absolute truths, coming back to what's going on here and now, eventually, over time, tends to get compromised. Like, for example, the Buddha never used the words in the Pali canon of absolute and relative truth, although all forms of Buddhism use that language. You don't find it in the early texts. You don't find that passing of reality into relative and ultimate or conventional and absolute, and yet it appears with all kinds of other doctrines and theories. It all tends to sort of encrust itself around what started out as something you know, very, very immediate, very, very real, sight and forms, ears and sounds, and so on. We soon end up with the, with the, with the mechanics of metaphysics. And the same thing happened in Zen. 
It started out as a rebellion against that kind of thinking, as we saw in the story with Teshan. But within about two or three hundred years, once Buddhism uh, became a rather more, um, I hesitate to use the word sophisticated, but a rather more established religion again, and Zen Buddhism likewise, we find that Zen has brought in a lot of the philosophical language that it had previously been very sniffy about. And particularly, we find that through the Tang period, which is like 8th, ninth centuries, into the Song period, you have two currents of Buddhism in China. You have the meditation school, or the Chan, or the Zen school. And then you have the schools of different forms of uh, Buddhist philosophy. The most famous one is probably, the one in China that was the most famous, was the Yogacara philosophy, the philosophy about how the nature of reality is that of mind. It's a kind of idealist philosophy. And there you get this increasing emphasis on the primacy of mind as both what is the source of all experience and reality and also that through understanding which you gain enlightenment and understanding. You also get the development of a school of thought called the Hua Yen, uh, the doctrine of the interdependence of all things. You also have the Madhyamaka philosophy too, although that didn't take off so well in China. But the point is that by the Song period, um, it became increasingly difficult to speak of these as separate schools. You've got a number of figures, uh, the famous ones are people like Tsungmi and Fatsang, um, who integrated Zen meditation with Buddhist doctrinal theory. And there was a constantly a tension between these two schools. Um, another example, this concerns a monk called Mu Chao, who was a, a Tang Dynasty Zen master. And one day it says he was having tea with a scholar monk. Again, from the very beginning, you have this tension, as with Teshan, the scholar monk, and Lu Tan, the Zen master. And so Mu Chao is having tea with a scholar monk, and he says at some point, I can't save you. And the scholar monk said, well, what do you mean? And Mu Chao picked up a piece of cake and asked him, what is this? Sound familiar? <laughs> and the monk said, a material object. And Mu Chao shook his head and said, you're the kind of fellow who should be boiled alive. <laughs> so we have... I mean, this, this illustrates, I think, very clearly the, uh, a rather radical difference in approach. At the same time, we get people like Dogen, who again would, is a highly erudite and learned monk, also, as we know, a founder of the Soto school in Japan. And here, too, you do get, I think, passages which are quite beautiful but somewhat abstract. But at the same time, and this is the beauty of Dogen, there's a constant returning to the primacy of felt experience. So, for example, he uses the word Buddha nature, which is a term you rarely find in the early Chan writings, in the koans. 
But when he's asked, well, when he explains what he means by Buddha nature, he says, Buddha nature is, what is this thing and how did it get here? Exactly that phrase that um, Hui Neng posed to Huai Zhang. What is this thing? How did it get here? That's Buddha nature. Not some, you know, some mystical mind or Buddha hidden away inside us somewhere. But the fact that our life can become a question for us. That's Buddha nature. That's what enables us to wake up. We can awaken, we can become Buddhas because it's our nature to be able to be a question for ourselves. So, I find that in going back to the Pali Canon, where, and again, putting aside Theravada Buddhism, putting aside Buddhist orthodoxies, going back to the primary discourses, um, that I find there a spirit very similar to the spirit of the early Chan records. Now, of course, the language and the style is completely different. So at first sight, they don't look as though they're similar at all. But they do have, I think, some very, very strong commonalities and shared themes. Uh, the suspicion of theory, of metaphysics, of um, transcendent truths and realities, and an emphasis on coming to terms with your actual felt experience here and now. That is quite clearly a common thread in the Pali Canon and in, let's say, the record of Lin Chi or of Yun Men, particularly the Tang Dynasty records of the original Zen masters. And I think we find a similar movement um, in our own culture, uh, particularly in the last century, uh, starting, I think, really with Nietzsche, where we get the movements of existentialism and phenomenology which again are rejecting this insistence upon um, you know, metaphysical theory and abstraction and seeking to recover the immediate experience of being human in the famous um, cliché almost of Sartre. He says, um, existence precedes essence. In other words, our existence, an ordinary person's life, comes before some essential nature of the person, be it the Buddha nature or be it a true self or an Atman or God or something, rather than the other way around. And it seems as though, especially when we get drawn into questions of religion or philosophy, there's a great temptation to invert that, to think that emptiness or Buddha nature or Atman or Brahman um, that is your true self that's what you really are and this messy ambiguous um, 
slightly painful and confusing experience we're having now, that is somehow less real. Sartre and Heidegger and others turn that back to front and say, no, what actually we need to look at and consider and give primary importance to is our felt existence as persons. And you get Husserl's uh, idea of, of die Lebenswelt, the living world that is uncovered in phenomenology through bracketing off all of the concepts and theories and views we have about life and arriving back at the living world itself. And it's here, I feel, that um, Zen, early Buddhism, um, and probably many other traditions too, uh, meet with the insights of certain currents within modern thought. It's a return back to the immediate, uh, to the primary uh, felt experience that we're having in this very moment. And that is what we are asking about. You know, what is this? This refers to an ordinary person's life. This refers to Nama Rupa Vijnana an experience that's constantly impacting us, that feels a certain way, is, makes sense to us, moves us, draws our attention, of which we are sort of totally aware. That's what we're asking about. Uh, we're not trying to break through to some, some sort of higher or deeper or more transcendent uh, reality that is concealed by that. So this brings us really back to where we started on the talk on uh, Saturday, whenever it was. Though where this whole process begins is with the idea of um, dukkha parinya, of fully embracing dukkha. Dukkha being code for an ordinary person's life or the five aggregates, or Nama Rupa Vijnana, or the six senses and their objects. The practice is to fully know that, but obviously not to know it just in terms of getting more information about it, but to know it in a way that's embodied, to know it in a way in which we open ourselves to it um, in a way in which we're completely receptive to what's happening, and opening ourselves to it in a way that we begin to recover that sense of being surprised that it's happening, that sense of, of wonder or puzzlement or astonishment. And it's there that we can then train in shamatha and vipassana, stilling the mind, using certain means to inquire more probingly into what's going on, asking, what is this? Noticing how things are changing, how things are dukkha, how things are not essentially me or mine, or whatever method we use. So that's where I'll um, uh, finish this evening. And we still have a little bit of time. If anyone would like to um, 
ask a question or uh, okay and then yes Manu No, I agree. No, that's... Um, I mean, certainly the point about transcendentalism I think is very, very, very clear here. We're not looking for something beyond. But I also agree. We're not, we must be careful not to slip into um, the sense that what we're looking for is some empirical reality that might be the object of the natural sciences. We're not doing that either. And that's why I like the word experience. And to try to extend the term experience and to recognize that it isn't broken up into an observing subject and an observed object. That's not the primary nature of experience. That's how we're conditioned to see it. But that's why I feel that when we ask this question, what is this? That this, in a sense, um, is prior to any of those determinations we would make. Either that the, this is beyond what's happening now, or this is somehow um, reducible to some kind of empirical truth. Yes? Yeah, uh, it's a funny thing. What you see in the microcosmos also goes for the macrocosmos. What I mean by that is that, yeah, in Europe, this idea of a god, almost Atman, that they had in ancient India, like the transcendental truth, which is God and heaven. And then we have this belief in this material world of science mm -hmm. and, and, no, and the physical objects which mm -hmm. rule everything. And it is intriguing to see that the Buddha found a, a middle path between mm -hmm. those two. And maybe that is happening right now as well as the reintroduction mm -hmm. of Buddhism in the West. Yeah, I think that's, again, it, it more or less mirrors what, what the other question was saying. Um, and I think the idea of a middle approach is, is a good idea, which is, of course, strangely a term the Buddha used as well. Um, but it is, I feel, the kind of middle course that perhaps is called for at our time. Um, what's interesting with the idea of the middle way is that even at the Buddhist time, it meant different things. It meant, on the one hand, avoiding extreme asceticism, on the one hand, and 
sensory indulgence on the other, but it also was understood uh, philosophically as avoiding the extreme of what he calls being, that things exist somehow in and of themselves, or the idea of non-being, that ultimately there isn't anything at all. So again, it's a middle that emphasises that life is not reducible to you know, these kind of polarised ideas. That life, in a sense, is, cannot be captured, cannot be reduced to such concepts, but really is the experience of what is arising and passing, is flowing, is unfolding, is constantly on the move, and as such is a process uh, which includes you know, the totality of what we are aware of. Uh, but that cannot be reduced to a thing, it cannot be reduced to matter, and for the, by the same token it cannot be reduced to mind. That would be the other dangerous to slip into idealism. It's all just the product of my mind. That all of those positions, I think, are, um, in a sense, dead ends. And what this questioning is doing is to put aside all of those theories, all of those views. And we, the trouble is we hold those, I think, often instinctively, not necessarily consciously. I think they're part of our, our culture to think in that way. Perhaps it's part of our you know, conditioning as human beings, I don't know. Yes. Do you believe or think that we can actively engage with human experience, with being human, without meditation? Well, I, I, well, again, what do we mean by meditation? Do you mean formal exercises like we're doing here? I expect I probably do. Uh, you probably do. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm thinking so something like making art or, or, or writing and engaging with well, the trouble is, I think we need to look at, at the evidence. And I think you can find many examples of artists or writers or philosophers or scientists who clearly have engaged in a very you know, total way with human experience, but have not spent two minutes sitting on a cushion doing something we would call meditation. But that's what makes... That's why I asked you what you mean by meditation. And meditation, as we do it formally, is obviously something that belongs to certain cultures and traditions. But what we do on the cushion, I think, is a common human activity. And one of the least um, known Buddhist doctrines, classical Buddhist doctrines, um, concerns a figure called the Pacheka Buddha, uh, sometimes translated as the solitary Buddha. In other words, there's this idea that's been around since the Buddha's time that even when there is no Buddha or Buddhism or anything remotely like it in the world, people still arrive at the same levels of insight and understanding and enlightenment through coming to consider and to investigate their lives and the world in a similar way. So it's not as though this is some exclusive property of something called Buddhism. But meditation, or let's say, um, inquiring about ourselves um, in a way that we now might call meditative, is something that human beings have probably been doing through all times and all cultures. 
without necessarily using that language or using those words. And uh, I find that idea a rather liberating one. For a start, it gets Buddhists off their high horse of thinking that they and they alone have found the way to truth, which I think is stupid. Um, but it acknowledges also that you know, all the Buddhism, in a sense, has, um, in a sense, preserved and, and, and developed are human qualities and that we'll find in greater or lesser degrees in, in other cultures, at other, in other religions. Uh, and that, I think, is the important point to bear in mind. Um, but nonetheless, if I put on my dogmatic hat, um, I do think that, for example, this, these kinds of formal meditative disciplines uh, fit very um, appropriately into the sorts of inquiries that people are more and more finding meaningful. So, for example, I think in the practice of phenomenology um, that something that's always puzzled me is, well, how do you do the eidectic reduction? How do you actually bracket off these things and arrive at a more living sense of the world? Um, I can't really see any methodology beyond a purely conceptual exercise. And I feel that this kind of inquiry, this kind of practice, um, is one that allows us, I feel, to reconnect with the living world, to reconnect with an ordinary person's life, um, in a way that's much more, um, uh, in a sense, much more real, much more immediate. We actually register these things in a sustained way, and of course also, it's not just about that, but at the same time, it has a kind of um, a healing quality. It actually is a way in which we can come to terms with our demons, we can come to terms with our own confusions, our anxieties, our questions of meaning and purpose. Uh, all of this, I think, is facilitated by uh, finding a stiller, clearer, more grounded, more open, uh, more, more wondering sense of life itself. So in, that, is, in that, that sense, I do feel that possibly it's one of the reasons why uh, meditation retreats and so on are increasingly um, popular, I guess, is that it is meeting some sort of need. And I suspect for some people it's, it's a need to those deeper questions of you know, how do we actually fulfill our lives as human beings in this culture, uh, in the kind of world we live in today? But um, that's actually a question I'm going to look at in my next talk. <laughs> um, quickly, then we have to stop. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you sort of traced out the history of Zen and, and related it to early Buddhism. Mm. Um, and then you mentioned Nietzsche and Sartre and so on. So there are all periods of time when there's um, <clears throat> significant sort of historical breaks or ruptures, mm. or, or, or you might say something that's radical or anti institutional. Um, I was just wondering about that because later on you see, say that this is a sort of universal thing, but. But something's happening at those particular times which sort of breaks with yeah. the past. No, that's right. I mean, what is striking is how um, the periods that I'm most interested in, 
the very beginning of Buddhism, the very beginning of Zen, are periods of, of crisis, periods of uncertainty, periods of where everything is kind of up for question. Uh, the established traditions are somehow not so sure of themselves anymore. And I think we're at a similar sort of juncture today. I think with the, the wane of our ancestral religions, the emergence of globalization, um, and of course also you know, the environmental catastrophe that's looming and that we're becoming conscious of, um, I think all of these factors are, are bringing us into a new a sense of the world for which you know, the, our, our, our old traditions, in a sense, don't really have much... You know, they don't, they're limited in what they can say to this. And it's, co- it's sort of incumbent upon us, I feel, to try to think anew. Um, I feel that we're always going to be thinking within a tradition. I think to sort of pretend that the last the whole of human history hasn't happened and we just start afresh, I think is naive. Um, and so we're going to, you know, we'll, I mean, people within Christianity, within the sciences, within the arts are all, in a sense, drawing upon the wisdom of their traditions in order to articulate a way in which we can you know, be in, in this situation perhaps more openly, honestly, appropriately. But where that will go, we don't know. But yeah, that's right. And I'm going to also mention, possibly next time, how there is within our early Greek traditions too, I think, um, currents of strong resonance with this approach. I've already quoted Lucretius, but I think Epicurus uh, and Pyrrho, I think we have traditions in the, in the West that were cut off essentially by the, it was the dominance of the church in about the 6th century AD. And then we have figures like Montaigne, I think is another key uh, person who somehow captures this kind of approach. We have to stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.